Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and all things electrically related. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host, and welcome to today's podcast. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host, as always, and thanks for taking the time to join in today and listen to our podcasts. Um, there's a lot of things in the electrical industry that people need to learn, obviously, and you know, being an electrician can be a tough job. I mean, again, that's why we get the big bucks, right? So, you know, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I can call myself a master electrician. Um, you know, I'm like anybody. I I get shirts and and little polo shirts that say master electrician on it, not because I'm promoting a business, but because of my pure pride at being a master electrician. And there's a lot of us out there. Um, it's um, really a, a, a brotherhood, if you will, sisterhood too, sister, don't forget the sisters out there. So um, you take a lot of pride. It doesn't matter what state you're in. You can argue which state has a harder exam. And they all, again, they're all generally based on the National Electrical Code anyway. So it is what it is. Also, exams really are nothing more than the gateway to learning more things about the electrical code and about the electrical industry. We always have to have exams because they're like the benchmark of a entry starting point for further knowledge. When you take an exam, it doesn't mean you have to know everything about everything when it comes to electrical codes or electricity in general. All it is is a jurisdiction's way of setting a front door, if you will, into the working process of being able to have a business and licenses and putting consumers at risk and all that stuff. So it's really just a a benchmark that you have to achieve. Certainly by no means when somebody gets a license that they think that they know it all because you don't. You're going to learn new stuff every day, little tricks and tips and things like that. Technology is always changing, you know. It's not so much like when I'm in the day when I pulled non-metallic sheet cable, you know, non-metallic sheet cable is pretty much the same today as it was then. Now, now we put pulling lubricant on it because this younger generation wanted to pull smoother through wooden studs like our older NMB didn't pull fine through wooden studs. Again, it's all about the holes you make. You make little teeny holes, you're not going to be able to pull the cable through it. How many people still do that? You know, you're going to be able to utilize all of that space that's available to you in that stud when you bore holes. How do you do your corners? There's a certain way that you do corners that we old school guys learn but maybe sometimes the younger guys don't learn unless you really had to work with some of the older guys that can kind of pass those things on. Or maybe you just learn by trial and error and all that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, 
Today's episode wasn't about any of that, in case you kind of clicked away in the first three minutes of it. Today's episode really is about explaining what's called performance requirements and what is our prescriptive requirements of the NEC. Now, the National Electrical Code, for the most part, is prescriptive-based. And what I mean is, the code tells you how to do something. For example, when we're running a, a branch circuit, the code tells us that we have to size the equipment grounded conductor based on the size of the overcurrent protective device that's ahead of that circuit. Okay, so that's prescriptive. You're telling me to do something. Um, so that's an example of that. Um, another example of telling us to do something is if we go from a service disconnect and we're going to run a grounding electrode conductor down to a grounding electrode, uh, what size that grounding electrode has to be based on the size of the service conductors that are coming into that service disconnect. Or maybe it's one of the ones in 250.66 A, B, and C, which is ground rings, uh, concrete case electrodes, or rods, pipe, and plates, that the National Electrical Code gives you kind of a, an allowance to use sizes that don't have to be larger than the size given in those sections. So there's certain things that we do that are prescriptive. We do it because the code tells us to do it. Now, why do we do that? In order to sometimes meet things like performance requirements. Let me give you an example of performance requirements. Now, in the National Electrical Code, you and the easiest way to explain performance, to be honest with you, is to talk about grounding and bonding. We do a lot of bonding, a lot of grounding, all of those type of things, and this article has kind of two faces to it. There is a general underlying rule that talks about having to meet a certain type of performance of the circuits that you're designing. Ultimately, as you design them and install them and size them, you're meeting a prescriptive requirement. So if you have your code book, and you might not, so I'll read it to you. Uh, let's look at 250.4, for example. Now, 250.4 says the general requirements for grounding and bonding. Okay, so we're going to understand the general requirements and what we're trying to achieve as far as general requirements. And it says, the following general requirements identify what grounding and bonding of electrical systems are required to accomplish. Why do we do it? That's important. That is, oh my God, if somebody asked me as an electrician where to start in Article 250, and if I could start with them at the very beginning and say, all right, I want to teach you something that you're going to have to remember so that when you start getting into the trade and you start sizing things like bonding jumpers, equipment granite conductors, and you start questioning why it's this size, why it's that size, why are supply side bonding jumpers one size and all that, before you start trying to wrap your head around that, really get back to realize why we're doing all that, why we're sizing all that, why the code, which is a minimum, whether you like it or not, the code is a minimum safety standard. It's the most minimally safe structure you're going to get by at least following these guidelines in the National Electrical Code. So with that said, you can always do more than what the code says. The code is a minimum standard. You just got to be careful because I know people that will go way too much above the minimum standard that it creates a hazard in itself. And that can be no uh, uh, done any worse than when not understanding Article 250 because you can really go the wrong way when it comes to grounding and bonding. And next thing you know, you've created objectionable currents that can cause circulating currents, and it's never a good thing. So let's look at 250.4 and understand that we're going to learn how to do things in this code book, especially in Article 250. But when it comes to grounding and bonding, 
we're trying to understand what we're trying to accomplish. And it says it right here in 250.4, amazingly powerful sentence. And then it goes on to say, the prescriptive methods contained in Article 250 shall be followed to comply with the performance requirements of this section. Isn't that amazing? For many people out there, it's like the heavens just opened up and you hear this, why? Because you've always wondered why you do something. And so when I talk to apprentices or people that are learning the code, I say, hey, when we get to 250, let's stop for a second. This first sentence, this first section, if you will, of 250.4, this first statement is so freaking powerful because now I know we do all this bonding because there's a reason. Now, what is that reason? What performance are we trying to achieve? Well, now, there's an, there is a 250.4a when we're dealing with a grounded system. There is a 240.b, which deals with an ungrounded system. Yes, we do have a lot of ungrounded systems out there as well. And of course, you also move on to understand that 250.6 talks about objectionable currents. And we have to understand the concepts of why we have objectionable currents and how do we prevent them. But when we get back to the core root of understanding, let's talk about grounded systems. Now, an example of a grounded system would be a alternating current system that gets the, the system gets bought to a premise, like a house or whatnot. Let's use that example. So anywhere between 50 volts to 1,000 volts that supplies premise wiring or supplies a house that's required to be a grounded system, okay? So we establish and we understand that because 250.4a says for grounded systems, it says, number one, it says electrical systems grounding. It says electrical systems that are grounded shall be connected to earth in a manner that will limit the voltage that is imposed by lightning, line surges, and unintentional contact with high voltage lines and that will stabilize the voltage to earth during a normal operation. Think about that. You've got lightning that can be imposed in the system, which could cause spikes in the system that can cause damage to electronics. Uh, people are in contact with these electronics all the time. We don't need that into the, into the structure itself. So this happens to do when this system is, for example, a grounded system. Now, because of the premise wiring system in the National Electrical Code says, because we're trying to achieve, let's say, 122.40 from a, a, a transformer that is grounded, then we achieve a grounded system. So we take a grounded conductor to that service. Now, that is without a doubt a grounded system. So we get kind of the, the understanding of why we or what we're trying to achieve by doing all these prescriptive requirements in the code so that we can limit the amount of voltage that's actually going to be imposed during lightning and surges. Trans, uh, you can have substations switching. All those things can create spikes and transients and all that that can come into the system. So um, it's so important to understand what you're trying to achieve here. This is a, a performance requirement. All the stuff that we do in the code to meet this like sizing those grounding electroconductors, that's prescriptive. We're told how to do it and what size it needs to be. Also part of that performance, we have A2, which says grounding of electrical equipment. 
So why do we run equipment grounding conductors? Why do we have bonding jumpers? Because we're trying to ground all that equipment. In fact, here's what the code says. It says grounding of electrical equipment. Normally, non-current carrying conductive materials enclosing electrical conductors or equipment or following part of part of such equipment shall be connected to earth so as to limit the voltage to ground on these systems. Again, that connection to earth is helping to stabilize the voltage on the system. That gives us a voltage that hovers around a usable range and we're required to do that. In order to meet this, we have to bond the metal parts together. We have to bond race metal raceways. We have to run equipment grounding conductors. We have to tie them to the switches. We have to bond all this together and we all have to tie it so that it connects by grounding back to the earth. Now, that's fundamental in the performance of the electrical system. How we do it is really a prescriptive method. You're not going to see prescriptive methods here in 250.4. These are the performance requirements that have to be met, but we'll do it prescriptively elsewhere in the code. And most notably, after 250.4, we get into more of a prescriptive type of requirements. Uh, also, moving on to bonding. So 250.4A3 says bonding of electrical equipment. So we had grounding of electrical equipment, tying everything together to create this connection to the earth. And then we have the bonding. And that says normally non-current carrying conductive metal enclosures, enclosing electrical conductors or equipment or forming part of such equipment shall be connected together and to the electrical supply source in a manner that establishes an effective ground current path. Again, you're going to see that 250.4A5 talks about what is an effective ground fault current path. Without that low impedance, without that low impedance circuit, you simply can't clear overcurrent protective devices. Okay? It's just not going to happen until you end up having a phase-to-phase fault or it just goes along so long that eventually something heats up and then the, the overload portion of the overcurrent device kicks in. But that's not quick enough. So you have to tie everything together so essentially everything's at the same potential and so that you don't have differences of potential. Again, you're not going to fully understand why we do things in the National Electrical Code unless you truly understand why we're doing them. And it's to meet the performance requirements, why we tie all these things together. So I get tons of questions on why we do this, why we do that, why we bond this, or what's the rationale behind it. It's pretty simple. You're doing it because 250.4 for grounded systems, 250.4a is telling you this is a performance requirement. You're doing all those prescriptive requirements in order to meet this performance requirement. Okay, And we know that if you meet this performance requirement, you're going to have a safe electrical system. Okay, Now, the whole entire code is literally made up of the prescriptive requirements that if you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that, you're going to have a minimally safe installation. Okay, uh, And ultimately, also kind of in performance, is that we want to do all this so that we again can have the minimally safest structure that we can have which is basically essentially performance-based as well. So this is, there's a reason why we do certain things. It's not just because the code tells us to do it, right? All right, so, um, and lastly in grounded systems deals with item A5, and that is an effective ground fault current path. What is it? Well, electrical equipment and wiring and other electrically conducted material likely 
to become energized shall be installed in a manner that creates a low impedance circuit facilitating the operation of the overcurrent device or ground detector for high impedance grounded systems. It shall be capable of safely carrying the maximum ground fault current likely to be imposed on it from any point in the wiring system where a ground fault may occur to the electrical supply source. The earth is not to be considered an effective ground fault current path. Now, we make connections to earth at the service, for example, because of those line surges, lightning strikes, transient voltages, high power coming in contact with low power lines, the the ability to stabilize the voltage in the system itself. But we don't use the earth as a return path for fault current. It's impedance and it's just too high. Now the utility use it because the voltage is so high and it only takes a little bit of Ohm's law to understand how that works. Uh, If you want to be a little test in Ohm's law, go and see what it would take for a 13.8 voltage on a 25 ohm ground rod to clear versus how many amps you have versus what it takes for a 15 amp circuit with a 25 ohm ground rod. And you're going to start to see there's a big difference in why a uh, ground rod at 25 ohms is never going to clear an overcurrent protective device again. So you don't use the earth as that return path, okay? Now, it is a path, but it is not an efficient path as well. And as far as how we construct things in the code, we're not to use the earth as that path, period, okay? So understanding why we size equipment grounding conductors... Uh, Again, for the facilitating the overcurrent devices, ground detectors. Um, Incidentally, even in ungrounded systems, we're still going to have equipment grounded conductors because we still have to take current away from possibly metal parts. Now, any metal raceway that has conductors in it that carry current could likely become energized, whether or not it's damaged, nicked, uh, or something happens during an installation. Every piece of metal equipment that houses a panel board, a cabinet that has a panel board inside of it, um, any of that, wireways that are metal, all of those things are likely to become energized at any given time, depending on a poor installation or something happened in that installation down the road. And so we have to put them together in a, a way that provides a low impedance ground fault current path. Okay, so here are all of that. Now, I won't go into the ungrounded systems, but again, it's essentially the same thing. Okay, and we do a lot of the same scenarios as well for that. But here's a key thing. There's a reason we do what we do, and it's not just done willy-nilly. So if anything I could tell you to take away from this lesson is that there's things that we do in the code that the code tells us to do. For example, 250.12 says clean surfaces. So if I have a non-conductive coating on a metal box or an enclosure or by paint or lacquer or enamel, then I either have to use a fitting that's going to cut through that and make positive contact or I have to remove the paint. Uh, I have to do something in order to make sure that I have metal to metal positive contact. Okay, so that is so that we can have good electrical continuity and that system can perform like it's supposed to. All right, so that's the concept of why we do it. And by doing this, removing the paint and things like that, when you're physically doing something, that means it is prescriptive. The ultimate outcome that achieves what we're trying to achieve in a safe system, that's the performance side of it. That's what we're trying to achieve. Doing it is prescriptive. Okay, so a lot of people ask me questions about what does it mean prescriptive versus performance? And that's the best I can give you on it to kind of paint this visual picture of how we're doing it. So hopefully you got something out of today's podcast. It is early on a Sunday. 
Uh, thank you again for taking the time to listen to the podcast. Um, hopefully you will visit our websites, masterthenec.com or electricalcodeacademy.com. Uh, if you know any apprentices that really want to learn more about residential, commercial, or industrial, uh, we have courses that are available. We have coupons that will literally slash 50% off of that. Now, all those programs are unique because you get one-on-one support from me and my staff when you're in that. It means that we, we will grade your tests. We will give you feedback. We're there directly for you to be able to ask questions. We do offer private webinars on occasion that are only available to students. All those type of things are available in those programs that you're not going to get from some students standard program. So I encourage you to look at them. Um, If you feel they're costly for you or you really want to really want to learn, our residential is at least 33 chapters or units long and it gets detailed with blueprints and everything. You're going to learn everything that you need to round out your career as a residential. Our commercial is the exact same way. It is extensive. It's not one or two course reading. You have a year's access to get all this. Um, We even have a two-year option if you want it, but we don't put that on the website. So just email us if you're interested. Industrial is the same way. You want to learn about motor controls, motor circuits, variable frequency drives. It is extensive. We even have a course that teaches you the basics of AC-DC theory and all things to do with electrical theorism. All of that's available and we'll offer that to you. But again, we encourage you to share it. If your company doesn't have an educational program, whether or not you have five electricians or 5,000 electricians, we have a turnkey LMS program and we will give you discounted rates on that program. In fact, if you get your company to join, we'll give you your course for free if you can sign them up under the corporate plan. So hopefully you get something out of that. Visit our website. Again, I'm always here to try to help and answer your questions. Visit us at masterthenec.com or electricalcodeacademy.com. And till next time, stay safe and God bless. Every day the future's getting closer. Every day the future's looking bright. Every day is another beginning.